In the coming months, let's see where else we can make progress together. Let's make this a year of action. That's what most Americans want, for all of us in this chamber to focus on their lives, their hopes, their aspirations. Welcome to Achieve Great Things. This is your host, RJ, from Hadaway Communications. This is episode 19. This week we talk to our friend Macon Phillips, who's the Chief Digital Officer at CARE. We talk about a lot of his experience, um, starting with working on the Obama campaign and working in the White House and then the State Department and now at CARE. He's got a lot of great insight on the digital landscape and the communications landscape, both changing dramatically. So um, really interesting conversation. We hope you enjoy it. And we hope you enjoy what you hear. Uh, please give us a review on iTunes if you haven't already. It really helps other people discover the podcast. And shoot us an email at podcast.hadaway.com if you have thoughts, feedback, questions, um, guest suggestions, etc. We're always looking for uh, feedback from our listeners. So thanks so much for tuning in. Enjoy this conversation with Megan Phillips. I'm here with Macon Phillips, who's the Chief Digital Officer at CARE, um, a good friend of mine and a, and a very um, accomplished and smart young man. So thanks, Megan, for joining. Thanks, RJ. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you today. So, Macon, um, you've been at CARE for a few months, um, helping lead the digital, digital team. Um, can you tell listeners, people who might not know a lot about your background, you know, what your earlier career was like and how you ended up here at CARE? Sure. Yeah. I mean, how, I don't know how much time we have. I mean, this could be, you might have to edit this down a little bit, but it all started back in Vermont, like all the many great things, yeah. uh, uh, many great things start, except for, uh, instead of Fish, uh, it started with Howard Dean. Um, he was sort of the catalyzing uh, force for me in my career. And I never worked on the Dean campaign, but I had come to Vermont uh, to be in AmeriCorps Vista and basically work in housing uh, developments uh, around Vermont uh, for a mentoring program and was really exposed to social justice issues for the first time and um, at the same time was when we were going to war uh, in Iraq or Bush was making that case and so I was really just kind of turning on and tuning in if you will to yeah. a lot of these issues that frankly I hadn't paid attention to when I was in college and high school I wasn't I think that um, aware of what was happening so that was my awakening mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, uh, Howard Dean started this campaign that was really innovative in terms of how it used the internet. Uh, and I became close with uh, some of the folks on that campaign and realized how interested I was at the intersection of social justice issues and, and sort of politics generally, as well as uh, technology. So after that primary campaign flamed out, people will remember that, uh, that end. Um, the uh, underlying idea of organizing and using technology continued and grew. And so I came down to Washington to work for an organization that was helping other groups do that. Yep. One thing led to another, and um, I ended up working on the Obama campaign uh, in Chicago uh, in 08. And after we won, I came into the White House, spent five years there, and uh, three years after that in the State Department. So I was from beginning to finish in the administration, which was a real honor. Um, and uh, 
after I left the State Department, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I was still fascinated with how technology was changing, how people communicate and organize, had developed a real appreciation for digital transformation inside large organizations, and got the international bug. Yeah. Uh, so being at State, I was able to, to travel quite a bit, see many different societies around the world and how they uh, are similar and very different from the one I knew. Uh, and now at CARE, I get to bring a lot of those experiences and interests to bear on uh, helping alleviate poverty and protect human dignity around the world. So there's uh, worse things I could be doing. Yeah. I feel very fortunate. The, you've been, you got to go to a lot of countries when you're at state, right? Do you know how many? You know, I should know that off the top of my head, but I, it's got to be over 40. I have one of these like um, scratch off maps. Yeah. Um, but I feel like I might have missed one or two. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, it was it was really great, and I brought back a soccer jersey for my son. Yeah. Whenever I traveled, so now he has a he has a lot one of the best closets in DC. Yeah, I've seen a lot of them, and his and his Ugandan pajamas. Yes, all sorts <laughs> of stuff. Um, were, before you went up to Vermont, were you had you always been interested in technology? Like you know, from the beginning of the internet, were you one of those people who was like on the internet before everyone else? I think I was, um, you know, an early mover. I was actually talking with an old, old friend um, uh, who I reconnected with the other week, and he reminded me that we bonded in many ways over a PC Junior in his bedroom playing King's Quest in 1984. So that kind of gives you a little (laughs) bit of a... I think that may have been about as early as I can remember having computers in my life. And then I do remember connecting to a BBS at school mm-hmm. uh, through a modem. You know, wow. uh, some of you on, on, the, uh, on the horn here will remember that. Many of you interns and young people won't. But it was <laughs> the thing that kind of made that weird, like, sound. But it was this idea that I could connect to a computer at my school and interface with other people. That was super interesting. But I didn't really study in school. And, you know, I was really into music, so I used Napster and all that stuff. I was always a gadget sort mm-hmm. of person, but I think the real moment for me was uh, really that Dean campaign yeah. moment where being from Alabama and seeing the impact of a tool like Meetup on um, supporters and communities like Huntsville, where I grew up, mm-hmm. um, where historically people weren't able to gather and find sort of people who shared their ideas, um, but then through Meetup they were. It was really exciting. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I kind of saw that potential and then was lucky enough to be uh, able to work on that in my professional life. So we could talk for a long time, I think, about the White House years and all the stuff you guys did, including overhauling whitehouse.gov and and doing a lot of interactive stuff like videos. And I mean, you guys were kind of pushing the envelope, I think, in terms of government communications. What were some of the lessons you learned in the White House about communications and how we do that in in political or advocacy? Well, I think one, the, the first thing was uh, it, it starts from the top. And so when I think about uh, the secrets of uh, our success when it comes to using technology and really social media and so forth, mm-hmm. it's that the president himself uh, is an organizer. Mm-hmm. And long before he was a politician, he walked around the neighborhood of Southside Chicago knocking on doors and listening to people and organizing them around problems they wanted to solve. And that's yeah not something that started with the internet. And I think having that idea that truly communication um, and, quote, engagement, mm-hmm. if you will, mm-hmm. um, is not simply about uh, getting your message out, although I think in many ways Obama was one of the best communicators uh, of my lifetime. 
it was also about letting people know that they had been heard and making them feel like they had agency in solving these problems. Uh, I think many people will remember the quote that um, Obama was asking people to not believe in his ability to change things, but in their own. And I think that really came through in the kinds of particularly online and social media initiatives that we took. Mm -hmm. It's not simply about Obama, as easy as that was, yeah. and sometimes we did, like the White House correspondence videos and all that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, he was a great, he is a great communicator and a great uh, personality, but mm -hmm. I think the really most effective things that we did were when uh, the president would catalyze um, a larger group of people around things like the um, various tax reform proposals around health care reform mm -hmm. uh, and um, and that was exciting to be in the middle of it it's yeah, I remember when we talked like talking in 2009 2010 about some of the stuff that was happening at the time like the auto bailouts that they you know was which ended up being a good story for the administration and for government but like that it feels like communication in, in government and from the White House is like a little bit of an uphill battle getting your proactive positive story out there. Did you find that more so than, than other other work you'd done, or is that sort of a misperception, do you think? Well, I first should say that I was lucky to be part of a really broad team of communicators, mm -hmm. and in many ways I didn't think of the digital team or what we originally called the new media team as simply a communications group. I, I saw us as relevant to the Office of Public Engagement and the other elements of the White House that weren't simply meant to get messages out, but actually bring information in. Hmm. That said, I learned so much working with the amazing talent uh, that was there, particularly the first term of the of the White House and then at State Department. And what what we found, I think, was that certainly there's some incredible advantages. You're, yeah. you, you create the news. You typically know what's going to happen before the rest of the world does because in many ways you're the one that chooses to do it. Um, you have access to some of the smartest people not just in the United States but in the world that literally work a floor above you or below you and are invested in uh, the president's policy. So your content can be great. Um, and then, of course, you have Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. And I think many of the uh, things that uh, we look back on as being very successful, we could just put on his shoulders as being an incredible communicator. But there was a lot of work that went into that uh, as well. I think some of the challenges were... First off, just how noisy uh, it was in the space, that there were smaller and smaller audiences, but many and many more audiences. And in some ways, they were organized around very clear, specific interests. So once you figure that out, you could meet them where they were, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But there were just many more audiences to, to consider. Uh, the second, and this became much more prevalent um, as we went into the administration, uh, was misinformation and yeah. just general confusion. Uh, now, of course, coming out of the 2008 campaign, we were already dealing with a lot of that about, you know, the president's religious views or a lot of the things that, um, you know, a lot of opponents were out there just smearing. But I think everyone would agree that eight, nine years later, it's just so much, so much worse. And so the notion of veracity uh, and, and trust. One of the slides that I keep coming back to every year um, that I, I think is a really terrific resource is Edelman's Trust Barometer. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, some people you know, can dispute the methodology of it or what have you, but the general trend now is that uh, regular people are losing faith in institutions, losing trust in institutions. And I remember showing that slide to Secretary Kerry and the other sort of big cheeses at the mm -hmm. State Department 
basically saying, you know, the person, the, the, the profile that is the least trusted as a government communicator, i.e., like a dude in a suit coming out with a .gov email address saying, trust me, doesn't work anymore. And if that's the case, then we really have to uh, reconsider um, how government communicates and how really large institutions communicate. Yeah. Well, so in the State Department role, I know that um, the way I understood what you were up to, you were in some ways helping um, democratic governments around the world sort of build their own capacity to communicate and and do things in new and different ways. Is that is that how you would put it? At that least was part a, of that it? Was, I think that was a really cool second part of the job. Yeah. Um, principally my job and uh, the, the bureau that I led uh, responsibility was to connect people with policy by supporting the efforts of our embassies and foreign service officers around the world to communicate with and engage foreign audiences, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great mission. I mean, mm-hmm. just such an opportunity to learn. Um, but what happened inevitably when I particularly traveled to countries is it would get reduced down to Obama's Twitter in chief is in town, you know, come <laughs> explain to me, you know, his yeah. wizardry and how he does it. And I would basically say what I just said to you yeah. about um, you know, the, the, the fundamentals of what we did. So I did get a chance to see the inner workings of some governments and how they think about communications. I think the ones that, that come to mind in particular are uh, Ukraine, which mm-hmm. we supported uh, through the invasion by Russia uh, after the Euromaidan and as they were trying to build the new administration uh, and really grapple with some serious issues. Um, I was lucky enough to be part of that conversation, but also conversations with the civil society in Ukraine, which is incredibly vibrant. Um, in Colombia, uh, looking at Santos and how they were uh, communicating about the peace deal, mm-hmm. I actually was there. Um, the week that they uh, got the peace deal brokered in mm-hmm. Cuba, mm-hmm. which actually went on to fail, but then came back after he got a Nobel Peace Prize yeah, and went yeah. through. <laughs> and it's just a really interesting story. But the idea of how you communicate about a complex policy like a peace agreement with FARC in a country like Colombia with so much history and challenges um, was really amazing to not just learn from in terms of how they're approaching it, but also to contribute a little bit in terms of what we had seen in the United States. So there were moments when uh, I was able, I think, to contribute to how countries were thinking about communications, but the main uh, thrust of my job was advocating for U.S. foreign policy priorities. Got it. And what did you learn about communications in you know the U.S. versus the rest of the world to, to reduce it to a very... American centric point of view. Are there big things? I mean, is every country totally different? Are there things that you learned from other countries that, that we could apply here and, and vice versa? I think it would be, I think it's easy to say every country is different. Mm-hmm. And that's true in many ways. Um, there are a few just very basic things that I took away. Uh, one is that from a connectivity standpoint, from a use of new media or, or internet, we're actually a lot more similar among some audiences and some mm. demographics than I think people tend to think. So a lot of the people who are in a position to make decisions, and I don't mean to be ageist, but mm-hmm. let's just say that they uh, come from a different uh, experience growing up and consuming information, going to college, uh, yeah. seeing events happen through television and otherwise, and now they're in positions of power, whether they're 45 or 65, mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of 25-year-olds, basically in every country around the world, who, whether it's through VPN or through what have you, mm-hmm. have access to um, any information they want at any time. 
and they may not be nominally a large group, uh, but they tend to be very influential. They mm -hmm. tend to be the folks in capital cities who are starting your online advertising company or starting a uh, entrepreneurship hub of some type, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. you know, are, are, are really interested in their own country, but are also interested in new economies and and, and so forth. Those are the people that we really need to prioritize uh, engaging um, uh, as a as a country, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think that was that was one misconception that I was constantly challenging within state. Um, in, in simpler terms, uh, just because there isn't a huge internet penetration in a country, maybe in sub-Saharan Africa, doesn't mean that there aren't incredible uh, opportunities to engage with people digitally mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, who are highly influential. Mm -hmm. I think the second thing, and this is, we're just scratching the surface, is the language domain. Um, it's just something mm -hmm. that I don't see grappled with enough uh, in sort of the notion of, uh, in this idea of the intersection of public diplomacy or communications and uh, national security. There are millions and millions and millions of people, billions if you will, who mm -hmm. live in very different language spheres. So when we talk about what the Russians think of the United States, it's important to understand how few Americans speak Russian and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And that the real uh, sort of uh, um, propaganda and information operations and things that happen, happen in Russian, uh, in countries mm -hmm. that we just don't even see. Mm -hmm. And as soon as that kind of behavior breaks into the English domain, you see the kind of impact it has. We all pay attention and talk about it, but that's not new. Mm -hmm. They've been driving the same ideas in Russian for a long time. China's another one. Mm -hmm. Billions of people are having uh, conversations about various issues, and it's completely opaque to most mm -hmm. of us. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, time and again, um, and, and, and I would see this, and being at the State Department was a really wonderful place because there's so many people who speak so many different languages, and, and you're able to get a little peek behind the curtain of mm -hmm. some of these things. But um, in the international context, I think that's actually a lot more significant than people give it credit. Hmm. And what can we do as communicators about that? Just try and understand, first of all, that we're operating in this totally different context than a lot of people. And, and are there more practical things you can do working with, like, you know, civil society organizations in other countries? Are there other things yeah. that it's, it's an interesting topic? Well, one of my favorite uh, projects from the State Department was the Young African Leaders Initiative. And in a very sort of basic way, this was... Uh, something that started with a traditional exchange program that we were able to then grow into a very vibrant community of young leaders across sub-Saharan Africa, uh, uh, all of whom spoke English. That was part of the criteria for being in the exchange program. Uh, and it grew to a few hundred thousand people in a virtual community. Um, what was really incredible was when we had a message to get out mm -hmm. uh, in a country, whether that was around our support for the Paris Climate Agreement or various trade agreement or an election was coming up and we wanted to show our support for peaceful elections, rather than simply having a tweet from the embassy go out or mm -hmm. uh, an ambassador give a speech, we were able to, um, over the course of weeks or sometimes months, educate the members of the network in that country and then really encourage them to go out as communicators in their own um, networks. And I think whether we're talking about language or just simply culture, but certainly in terms of credibility, um, we need to be focused much more on developing affiliate networks, surrogate networks, uh, people who share our interests, but frankly are more credible and effective mm -hmm. in reaching target audiences mm -hmm. than rely on 
the fact that America's cool and you know <laughs> we have uh, great messengers and whatever because that's just increasingly not um, not working. Yep. Uh, so you know I think that ultimately if you're for example having a long overwrought conversation about how to achieve some kind of communications goal um, let's say in the Middle East uh, but you don't have anyone there who speaks Arabic you probably should check yourself yeah uh, and if you aren't bringing in members of the target audiences that you have generally to be part of shaping that strategy you know you, you really need to rethink how you're resourcing these uh, efforts overall yeah, that's really, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so you have all this experience, um, great experience, and CARE is lucky to have you here. What what big opportunities do you see for, for this organization, and what did you come in seeing from a communications perspective in terms of opportunities? Well, I think from a big picture, the reason that I feel so fortunate to be at CARE and so compelled to work in this space is a, well, I mean, I guess since everyone here is or listening is into like, communications and sort of narratives mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. this may be the way I, th- I think of it it's actually kind of sad um, I think that there is a tendency because we've seen so many movies that have the final scene being the hero comes in and pulls the red wire from the bomb and there's mm-hmm. three seconds left and everybody's happy um, to think that crises can be saved, that there's some hero that comes in at the end. And when I think about climate change, and I'm leaving aside all of the, the developments of the last year, just as a general trend, we are already past the point of no return. And being in government, I learned about climate policy in a way that was really sobering to me, that there's whole categories of climate policy that aren't about prevention, but are simply about adaptation and mitigation. Mm-hmm. And what that means essentially is accepting that the waters are going to rise, that crops are going to be disrupted, that people are going to be displaced. Mm -hmm. And that is not something that fits into the American uh, (laughs) psyche, Um, just anticipating failure in many ways. Uh, And so the consequence of failure is that we're going to have millions of people displaced. And I want to be part of how we prepare ourselves for that. And I don't want to ignore that. Uh, And so... Care does so many things, but they're all oriented at this idea that everybody has dignity and we should be able to protect that dignity. And right now we think that's challenging. I think in 10 years it's going to be 100 or 1,000x more Mm -hmm. challenging. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I want to be part of that solution. That's ultimately what brought me to care. Um, I think that that's a grand idea mm-hmm. uh, in some ways. I think that I get caught up in the very sort of day-to-day ticky-tacky stuff. Uh, as, like most any, of us do. as most of us do. <laughs> yeah. um, but I still try to put that into three main buckets and how I think about the role of the chief digital officer and what a digital strategy for care means. The first is just the basics. It's the infrastructure for the organization. Mm-hmm. We need the internet to work. Mm-hmm. We have to figure out what are the, the machines that we use? What are the technology platforms? Is it Microsoft? Is it Slack? Mm-hmm. What are our cybersecurity issues? Mm-hmm. This is like IT, but I think anyone in IT will tell you certain parts of the job have gotten easier as we mm-hmm. move to the cloud, but certain parts have gotten super, super hard and you know, won't shock you that care isn't necessarily on the cutting edge of this. Mm-hmm. So it's really just making tech work getting the foundation right. It's a lot of nonprofits in the same boat, I'm sure. Totally. Right? And you know, we can I think the reasons are obvious in some mm-hmm. ways, but um, nevertheless, it's imperative yep. that we get it right. Yep. That's the foundation. Yep. On top of that foundation um, is the second bucket, which is how do we use technology to scale our impact? 
um, I mentioned that we're going to be facing 10x, 100x, 1000x issues. We probably need to have an app for that or yeah. like look at data analysis strategies or figure out um, some other way that digital technology can help us take what is our sort of ongoing mission but do it in a much more innovative way. Mm -hmm. um, that requires a good foundation, but it also requires collaboration with people outside of care and really understanding what's been working in the field and scaling that up. Yeah. And the final piece really gets at my background and a lot of things that we've talked about, which is tell a compelling story mm -hmm. uh, about CARE's work and about the issues that we're tackling in a way that creates alliances uh, and uh, advocates for our issues. But ultimately, I don't think that will be successful until we have a substantive story to tell. Um, and, and by the way, we do already, but I think there's so much more we can do mm -hmm. from a digital perspective. And that won't be possible. Uh, until we have the the right foundation, so it's it's both a pyramid, but it's also a sequence in yeah. some ways of how I think about the work here. It's a lot of stuff. It's yeah. a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, but that's a great way to think about it. I wonder. Um, hopefully, people who are with nonprofits listening can get get um, some lessons out of that because that sounds like even the basics are probably out of reach for a lot of small nonprofits. Well, the, right? you know, it's, it's it's there's an irony, and this is I think for a whole other conversation mm -hmm. perhaps, but uh, one of the things that I, uh, I found that I really enjoy is the challenge of transformation within large organizations, mm -hmm. big institutions mm -hmm. like the State Department um, and CARE. Mm -hmm. You know, the Obama campaign was one person mm -hmm. <laughs> at the beginning, right, mm -hmm. and then sort of grew. Mm -hmm. um, and one of my main uh, responsibilities in, in 08 was uh, supporting the growth of a team from 35 people to 110 in three months. I mean, it's your classic startup story. Mm -hmm. right? I like to joke that we went public and I had my New York Stock Exchange moment in Grant Park and yeah. all of that. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Know, the return and the financially <laughs> wasn't as good, but the, the feeling was awesome. Right. And uh, anyway, so that was a startup, right? We mm -hmm. were just making it up as we went. And then the White House... Uh, it's, it's kind of similar in some ways because particularly in the domestic sense, you have a pretty close to 100% turnover. And so you're kind of in between. New people, questioning things, but throughout constantly being told this is the way it's been done, this is the way it's been done. By the end of the eight years, you're kind of into your own habits. Mm -hmm. But then you go to the State Department and it's like, whoa. I just like, I guess I fell into um, a big pot of amber, you know, mm -hmm. like the things the bugs are mm -hmm. suspended in. Yeah. I feel like, oh. <laughs> I can't change is very hard. Yeah. But coming out of that for three years, I realized that that's just an excuse. That actually within state, there was an incredible pockets of people who were driving new innovative approaches and they were able to actually have impact that mm -hmm. no startup could because of the scale of the State Department. Yeah. And that's similar to, to CARE. We are in 90 countries. We have thousands of people around the world. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of money flows through in terms of our, our various programs. So if you can make incremental change here, mm -hmm. that has a significant impact at the edge. Someone at a, a small startup, they kind of have an opposite approach mm -hmm. where they could gut their IT systems in a weekend yeah. and come back with something new because they only have 20 people to bring through that True. you know change management. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the scale of that impact is going to be sometimes um, less so it's a you know trade-off yeah yeah that yeah that's a good point um, well so we've talked a lot about um, we could go on for a long time but I want to let you get back to your important job um, so we live in this sort of troubling time you mentioned climate change I mean there's millions of issues that mm -hmm. we could talk about politically 
<clears throat> we're in a scary place in, environmentally, culturally, technologically, etc. So is there anything like based on all your experiences, and it might be hard to sum it up, but do you have any tips for people doing communications for nonprofits or foundations, practical, one or two practical things that you'd suggest people keep in mind based on all your experience, um, things you've learned? Wow. Yeah, yeah I, I, I've never been really good at like the pithy advice. I think <laughs> that the um, challenges that I find are, one, a lack of intention in communications. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is I'm not this is this is a podcast so we don't really have the visual aid here mm-hmm. but I'm not necessarily a paragon of uh, working out all the time. Okay, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Okay. Um, maybe I sh- maybe I, I can improve that. But nevertheless, I've, I've I've exercised some in my life. There's a difference between exercising because you want to lose weight or maintain a weight and you have a quantitative metric and exercising because it just makes you feel better because it's some kind of like therapeutic, like you just get it out of your system, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Both of those things are valid. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes that in communications, we tend to go with the latter because we just are so frustrated and we want people to know and we just sort of like express ourselves mm-hmm. and that has value in of itself. But it actually isn't a means to any kind of end that we've defined. So as we look at communications and public engagement, I think it's really important to ask ourselves, you know, why are we doing this in the first place? What is the behavior change we seek? From which group? How will we know that happened? In many ways, that's marketing. It's mm-hmm. not comms. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, even when we look at traditional PR or what have you, they still measure, or they should, their effectiveness in terms of performance metrics like articles published or sort of things covered as well as outcome metrics like uh, change in attitude. Mm -hmm. I think to some extent they've been able to avoid hard questions with that because the technology and the speed of conversation was never in a place where it was easy to measure. Mm -hmm. It's obviously changed. Mm -hmm. So it's important that communicators uh, really reflect on uh, the notion of intention in their work and define their work as trying to achieve something. Mm Um, I think the second would be uh, our tendency to um, not uh, to not listen to um, other ideas uh, and to simply try to be louder and more um, uh, uh, persuasive um, or worse, only talk to the people who already agree with us. And mm-hmm. These aren't new ideas. I think a lot of people out there are are doing uh, are aware of this. But what most people, um, or rather what I've benefited from, I think, is having personal relationships with people who disagree with me and really trying to uh, have, encourage them to challenge me. So I think as a communicator, um, and you know, here in Washington it's pretty easy to find that, mm-hmm. uh, it's important to find people who you would never vote with, um, um, you know, but, but are people that you... Um, can talk to uh, about how they see the world and understand whether you agree with it or not, mm-hmm. what those dominant ideas are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a friend or two at the White House, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy yeah. to say, but I, I really value those relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would ask people, you know, when you think about your own life, to the extent that you're actually supposed to be communicating with people who aren't thinking like you, um, how is that reflected in your own personal life? Yep. 
Awesome. Um, well, this has been great, and I, it would be good to do a follow-up because I think there's a lot more stuff to cover, but thanks for taking all the time. I'd be happy to, and I should just say, uh, I'm sure you can post this in the, the information, but yeah. my email address is makinphillips at care.org, uh, and I've benefited so much along the way from people reaching out to me about jobs they might, uh, or I've reached out to people about mm-hmm. jobs and organizations, and if they know anybody there, or for advice or tips, or just to kind of vent. Uh, I'm always eager to hear from new people and organizations, awesome. particularly those that are in line with CARE's mission, because yep. uh, we're we're trying to do a lot of new things here, and uh, we can't do it alone. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely include that. Thanks for, for offering. I'm sure people will take you up on it. All right, thanks, Megan. It was a pleasure, RJ. Thanks again for tuning in to Achieve Great Things. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes and give us a review there. Um, shoot us an email at podcast at hadaway.com. If you have thoughts, suggestions, comments, thank you very much for listening. See you next week. In the coming months, let's see where else we can make progress together. Let's make this a year of action. That's what most Americans want for all of us in this chamber to focus on their lives, their hopes, their aspirations. 